This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 219. guys, before we get into this podcast with Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones, I just want to thank you all for supporting the podcast. It's starting to grow more and more this year than last year, and so I know you're out there listening, and I really appreciate it. If you could continue to help me by signing up for my emails on my website and also liking all the social media sites, that would be great. My YouTube channel is a little weak, so if you have a chance to go check that out, please do and um, subscribe. And I will continue getting those videos out there for you to watch if you like to watch the podcast in place of listening. Let all your veterinary friends know that I'm here as well so they can listen with you and you can discuss the topics that are on the podcast. Let me know if you have any guests that you'd like to hear or any questions for me or subjects that you'd like to hear me talk about. I'd be happy to put that on my list of things to do. Okay, that's enough commercial for now. So please enjoy this conversation that I had with Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones. Hey, veterinary friends, welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I have a wonderful return guest for you, one of my favorite people that I've met since starting my podcast. It's Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones. She is a veterinarian and MBA and the director of Unleashed Coaching and Consulting, and she's coming to me today from Australia. So welcome to the podcast again, Jessica. I'm delighted to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's fabulous to see you again. I know it's been a while. So I was so excited when I got you to, to come back. So before we get into what we're going to talk about today, um, do you want to just give like a little brief, um, bio of, of how you got to where you are now? So people, if they haven't listened to you before, kind of know who you are. Sure. So yeah, the very brief version of I'm a vet, um, graduated here in Australia, didn't um, enjoy clinical work as much as some people do. So went fairly rapidly into animal welfare management. So ran a few shelters in developing countries, then back home in Australia and New Zealand. Um, I've done a lot of work with RSPCA, um, currently also the um, manager of wildlife health and welfare for Taronga Zoo and also um, have my own little consulting business where I help other animal welfare organizations and vet clinics with what I call the people part of the animal industry. So um, twofold, uh, that's sort of external. So helping them improve compliance with their owners um, and, you know, clients that they're working with, but also internally, I do a lot of work with um, both vet clinics, trying to help their improve their leadership skills, culture and engagement, um, and then helping individual vets often um, either in the new grad space or what I find to be a really common um, area of need is that kind of somewhere between the four and eight year slump, I call it, where um, a lot of our profession find themselves in a little bit of a, um, 
you know, they, they want to know what the fork in the road is from here because sometimes they're feeling a little bit unsure about the next step or is there even a next step? Um, so I do a lot of coaching and individual work and retreats with people in that space. So really rewarding, love working with people as much as I love working with animals. Um, and that's about me. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I find that as well. It's like the brand new grads are still kind of excited about the profession. And sometimes once you're out a few years, then that's when it starts to get difficult, right? Because you're not, you don't always see, you know, what the path is and where you're going and that kind of thing. So today, that's kind of what we're going to talk about, right? We're going to do some um, talking about recent grads or maybe your four to eight year, you know, slump and how we can improve our mental um, health in order to get our longevity in the profession um, and make sure that we create a good life out of this job, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, whether you are a recent grad or whether you're, you know, nearing retirement or somewhere in the middle, you know, just some of the the tools to help you remember why we're in it um, are really important, but also tools that help you remember you know that there are options and I think whether you're a new grad who's just realizing oh okay is this what I do all day every day and now that my learning curve is slowing down I'm kind of realizing I might get bored quite quickly or whether you're at the end of your career going well do I just go from doing this 50 hours a week to absolutely nothing or yeah. that's somewhere in the middle where you're going, oh, God, I'm bored out of my brains. But, you know, during an internship or a residency has all of this hard work with, you know, not much financial reward. Um, you know, are there other options out there or do I just have to jump ship and leave the profession completely? So I think there's so many different parts of our profession where people are looking for is this it? You know, what, what do I do now? Um, is, is this all that there is? And I don't mean to say that in a way that makes the veterinary profession not sound like it's full of wonderful, wonderful things, because it is. Um, but I do know from personal experience, as well as many, many people that I work with and colleagues, um, that sometimes we've worked really, really hard to get there. We're type A personalities who worked our butts off to get into vet school. We worked our butts off to get through vet school. We worked our butts off to be, you know, the best new grad ever and to, you know, this huge steep learning curve. And then suddenly, you know, you're mainly competent at your job. You can do most things without asking for help. And now, well, what is this? Is this me? Is this as far as I evolve in my life other than some Friday night CPD through my clinic? <laughs> right, right. And I think that those are some of the big questions that people in my experience are starting to struggle with in that mid-career point, particularly. Yeah. Well, I see it as um, it's that drive, right? Because we were so driven to when we were kids to get to vet school and then get into vet school and then get through vet school and then get our first job. Like all those are really driven things. And then when you do land in a job, it, you do sometimes get to that point where like, what's your next challenge? And I was lucky that I wanted to be an owner. So that was kind of my next step up is buying a mm -hmm. practice, which I think some to work people, towards. Yeah. Some people are designed for that, but not everyone is. So let's talk about the recent grad piece. Like what advice would you give to people that are either still in vet school 
and looking for their first job or or recent grads that have just gotten out in the last few years, how to create for yourselves or think about that longevity? Like what is, how do you do that? How do you plan for that? Look, I think one of the big pieces of advice I tend to give to a lot of people in this space is to decide up front whether you want to prioritize doing the most good for animals today or the most good for animals over your career. Mm. Do you, you know, because one of the things that we tend to find, particularly in that recent grad space, you want to do everything so well and you want to do an excellent job by every patient and you want to see that one that turned up at, you know, 6 p.m. on a Friday night and you want to help everyone and you feel awful saying, no, sorry, we're full, you know, here's a number of another clinic or, you know, there's this need for us to do as much good as we can. Most of us are in the industry because we want to help animals. And I find that that burn, that really, really quickly leads to ethical conflict where people are kind of constantly forced to choose between doing probably what's right for that animal versus what might be right for them or their family or going home to their kids or if you know the recent grads that are less often to have kids but much more in that space of trying to work out you know how do I be a young person and have a life and enjoy my life and travel and do do those things when I'm trying to be really committed to this career I have. So yeah, I, I talked to them about if you help every single animal you can every day for the next two years of your life and at the cost of being young and enjoying your life and spending time with your friends and having time off, then your career in the veterinary industry may be a lot shorter mm. because you will burn out or just decide you don't like it and that it's not for you. Mm -hmm. And then overall, you haven't done as much good for animals as you could have. And so I I like to sort of start with a conversation about if you are working your butt off to help animals and that is what's causing, you know, constant stress or constant conflict between your life and your work, then it's time to start reframing how many animals you can help and stop counting them in the day and start counting them over your career. Because if you can be in this till you're 70, you're going to be a lot more helpful to more animals than if you, you know, either decide it's not for you or, you know, you have to cut down to part time because you, you know, find the hours overwhelming or whatever that looks like for you. But ultimately that that's sad for animals and for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it, that, you know, you can do short term and really bust it out or you have to slow down, set some boundaries, and then you can be, you can have longevity. Yeah. And I just find, you know, when we're talking about longevity in the industry, a lot of people, you know, give you kind of, I guess, these sort of vague concepts of, you know, concentrate on work-life balance or, you know, it's important to prioritise you. I don't know that everybody knows how to do that when it's in almost direct and immediate conflict at 6pm on a Friday night. Yes, yeah. And the client standing there begging you to help them. Mm-hmm. that's a or, really hard you know, yelling at your receptionist because they're saying sorry we you know we're 
we can't take a new patient. And it's so easy to say in these grand sort of statements about we should improve our work-life balance for our recent graduates. But in real life, put any of us with any sort of compassion in the room with an animal that's got an ear infection and it might have to wait till Monday morning. And most of us are going to choose to stay anyway. Right. And that's a minor example. So I think it's just about trying to set people up for success to help them make those choices in a way that is still fulfills their ethical and, you know, their compassionate want to help animals by letting them know that helping those, you know, five animals this week might actually not enable you to do as much good for animals as you could across your career. Right. Hundreds maybe, right? Because if you quit after five or six or seven years, then there's all these hundreds or even thousands of people and animals that you're missing out on. Yeah, yeah. that's a beautiful way to think about it. So practically, do you have like some practical tips on how this can work? In, whether you're a hospital owner, like how can you set your employees or your team up for success in this realm or yeah I think that was that's a particularly good question about as a hospital owner what could you do to help and one of the things I would always encourage leaders to do is remove those day-to-day -day ethical dilemmas from the the team on the ground having to make them so have policies if somebody phones for an appointment after 5 50 we cannot see them that day. Then the receptionist can just say, I'm really sorry, this is our clinic's policy. They don't have to go and ask the vet and then the vet has to morally have the weight of saying yes or right. no on them and they look like a horrible person or they feel like a horrible person or they say, oh, you know, the receptionist can decide. And then the poor receptionist has to make that call and feel totally right you know, they either have to Powerless. upset the vet or they have to upset the client and, yeah. you know, where their loyalties lie. And so as an employer, I think it's really important that we can take some of those ethical dilemmas out of the hands of our people by just having internal policies. Now, of course, if a vet, you know, or even a receptionist in conjunction with court talking with their vet wants to override some of those, you know, maybe that's important to talk about as well and what happens if they want to stay back. But we need to make sure that the overarching culture that we're encouraging is that we want people in this for the long game. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not here. If you are a good employer who does well by your staff and wants to run a sustainable business in this current market, you can't be here for the short game. You can't hear, you know, just churn them out and get as much out of them as you possibly can. This right, week. make as much money they, every day that yeah, you can. exactly. And the more you think about, and it, to me, it's the exact same thing. If you're, even if you're the most heartless employer and you, you know, couldn't care less about the well-being of your staff, if you think about it in the exact same concept of you could make as much money as possible today, but how much is that going to cost you over the life of your organization and the turnover of vets as they burn out? Um, you know, so it's the exact same concept. Stop thinking about how much money you can bring in today or how many extra clients you can squeeze into your vet's lunch breaks and start thinking about how long are they going to be with you? Because that's an investment that you should be making. Yeah. I think, I think that is something that a lot of practice owners 
either don't realize or don't internalize. And I just, I found when I was running my practice that if you lose someone, it costs you so much more money to replace them than it does to pay them a good wage, be kind to them, let them have time off, close early enough that everybody can get out of there and get home. That is more valuable. And I think just you saying that you're looking at the long game, not the short game, I think is a really good way to think about it. Because I don't yeah, think you know, it's that a way. Statistic- Sorry. That's okay. A statistic I heard recently, which I haven't fact checked, but um, from a source okay. that I fairly trust, somebody can fact, uh, was fact that on average us. it costs probably twenty five thousand dollars per vet that leaves you. Wow. Um, you know, and that is just the the ex- immediate costs of recruitment, the time to interview p- new people, the you know delay in training a new person, the you know getting them up on systems, all of those kind of immediate costs. It doesn't even begin to cover the costs associated with your clients being irritated by there being downtime and maybe going somewhere else, right. or the clients not liking that they have to explain everything to a new vet or, you know, that that vet has to integrate with your team and they're going to sort of gel differently and the rest of the team has to learn to deal with that. So, you know, when you start adding up all of those costs, you know, to fit in one extra, you know, vaccine on that vet's, you know, when they could have their admin time, you know, it's just just let let them have their admin time. Yeah. So... (laughs) Practically speaking, what we had to do at our practice was we just had to keep cutting back when our last appointment was like, rather Mm -hmm. than butting it up to like, we closed at six or seven, depending on the day, rather than butting it up to our last appointment is at six 30 or six 40, we had to go back to, okay, our last appointment is at five or five 30. So therefore you have that little extra buffer time to get it done, get everybody cleaned up, you know, the hospital straightened up and then everybody can leave when you close. And it's a, it's quite a mind shift, I think for some owners, because they do have to look at the numbers. So, but I think, I think, like you said, it's super important. So what advice would you give to someone who is working for someone that doesn't see that, that doesn't embrace that concept? Like, is there a way to change the profession from within or do we have to just keep jumping jobs till we find the right boss? Like, what do you think about that? I fully believe that changing our profession is all of our responsibility. Um, you know, I think it's easy to sit in a workplace and go, all of these problems are my boss's fault. Or to sit in an industry and go, all of these problems are the industry's fault. I genuinely believe that the solution to any of the challenges that our industry face at the moment are the industry's responsibility, clinics' responsibility, and staff's responsibility, and clients' responsibility as well. Um, And I think that it's really important that we know not only do we have the power to make a difference, we have a responsibility to make a difference, both for, you know, those that are going to come after us, but also because there's nothing less productive for your mental health than whinging about something that you hate 
but never trying to change it or get out of that situation. You know, that negativity cycle of just kind of going, my boss always makes me stay late or, you know, they always book things in my admin time or they, you know, those things that we all sit in the tea room and gossip, gossip, gossip about. And, you know, what I call the struggle Olympics, you know, who is under the most pressure? Who's the yeah, who most has it the worst, busiest? right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like exactly. My, you know, exactly. my job's worse than your job kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah I hate and that. And we do that in the veterinary industry, don't we? We do tend to get together with our vet friends and we're like, oh, yeah, I worked, you know, 60 hours last week and this and I had this horrible case and I'm never gotten a lunch break in my whole career <laughs> and you those kind of martyrdom moments of how bad have we got it and you know look sometimes trauma bonding is nice <laughs> you know sometimes it's nice to go back to our old colleagues and have a little bit of a you know whinge about stuff but when you get stuck in those cycles of how bad things are without going hang on I am a part of the solution here that's when it just becomes a negative spiral rather than yeah, a constructive way forward. In it, right? Yeah, and you do. And this is the thing. Never more than right now. And, you know, we can have a, I tend to find we're going a little bit doomsday-ish on the horrible state of the industry. And, you know, it feels a little bit like there's a lot of sky is falling kind of conversation where I don't necessarily believe that that's true in, in every part of our profession right now. But I think, you know, we all need to start going, what can I do to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And what can I do to change the, the norm? Mm -hmm. So, you know, immediate examples is you should have your own boundaries. If your boss isn't setting them for you, you should have them. You should decide yourself and communicate with people that I go home at this time. Here's the reasons I might stay, you know. Right. I'll, I'll give you <laughs> a these Russian exceptions. or a GDV. I, I will stick around because, of course, I'm going to stay for a life-threatening scenario you know, he, here's the reasons that it's okay to interrupt me in my lunch break. Signing someone's vaccine certificate is not one of them. Right. You or know? approving a drug that somebody forgot to reorder, you know, that happens a lot. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's about going, I have a responsibility to protect myself too, because you legally are allowed to. You know, you can say no. Correct. And the problem is because we go, oh, but everyone else says yes, so then I just look like I'm being difficult. What you may well find is that everyone else wants to say no, they just haven't had the courage to. Mm -hmm. And so sure. by trying to change the norm and change the culture of what it's okay to interrupt your lunch break for, you can start to have some power. If you can and if you're competent and if you're in a semi-cohesive team, you know, have that conversation as a team, agree some team boundaries. Your boss may not even need to be in the room, but I would encourage you to include them because it's easier <laughs> to get them on board with it if they see the conversation that happened. Right. But agree as a team. These are the things that it's okay to interrupt us for. This is, you know, because that's not just vets. That's the nurses and the vet on the receptionists on their lunch breaks too. Right. So everyone benefits from being upfront and honest about some of this stuff. So have, a, you know, a lunch break where you sit down and have that kind of chat. 
agree boundaries, don't enter the Struggle Olympics. If the Struggle Olympic conversation is happening around you, then you have some choices <laughs> and you can join the fray, you know, and try to win that award. Or you can go, yeah, look, today was a bit tough, but do you want to hear about this awesome case I just saw? You know, can you take around. any responsibility for changing the narrative? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not up to that, if that's a bit too hard and you haven't got the energy to change the narrative of a room of five people, you can just turn around and walk straight back out again and just yeah. not join it. That's, well, and that's a very a easy message. decision. That's a strong message, right? If everybody's doing the struggle, struggle Olympics thing and bitching and moaning and you just like walk in and hear it and turn around and leave, that, that'll that show they will notice. They'll be like, oh, why did Dr. Capel just walk out of the room? Oh, maybe we were being too negative. Like they'll start to get it. Even if you don't have that Mm -hmm. ability to confront, I think that's what, what we think of it as, is if we're going to change it, we're confronting. And a lot Mm -hmm. of us don't, a lot of people don't Mm -hmm. like that conflict Mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. And I agree. And not many people are brave enough to just say to their colleagues, oh, you guys are being super negative. <laughs> you know, right. some of us do. What a bunch but of whiners. Of us yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you probably you know, would. I, get I probably would. <laughs> <laughs> but most of us, you know, if we're really feeling passionate about what we can do to help and to pave the way for those around us, it's really non-conflicting to just kind of go, yeah, I agree. Today's tough. Did you hear about this cool thing I did? Or today I learned to do a new skill or, you know, just shift the the direction of it without ever having to, you know, tell them that that's what you're doing. You don't have to be confrontational about it. Yeah. Just as long as you have the mindset of you're trying to redirect or be more positive, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that those are some of my biggest tips for those that are new to the industry and that are kind of feeling their way through, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say no to these things. I don't know, you know, I don't feel like this culture is great, but I have no idea what power I have to do anything about it. You know, generally when we get a little further along in our career, sometimes we're a bit more likely to kind of stand up and go, mm, nah. You know, or this place isn't for me. I hate this culture. I'm out. I'm out. Right. Um, but I think at the beginning, there's those really small, simple, practical things that you can be doing to just make sure you're looking after you, which is looking after animals and not thinking that those two things are conflicting. Yes. You know, it's mutually inclusive to look after you and to help more animals. Yeah. It's kind of that. Um put your oxygen mask on first kind of thinking, right? Take care of yourself first and then others will be better cared for. Yeah. And it can be hard to conceptualize that because, you know, my career span feels so far away when you're 23, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard to yeah, imagine but, the animals. But coming, from, coming from where I'm coming from, it goes by fast. Mm, like it, it does, goes by it in the blink of an eye, that, that career of yours. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's kind of my my really basic first tips for those coming into a situation. Um, obviously, a lot of the mindset work that I do with a lot of my um, 
you know, those that I'm coaching or, or mentoring is a lot um, more generic. It suits recent graduates. It suits end of career. It suits mid-career. Um, but sort of that's specific for those who are not super confident to be confrontational, don't 100% know where they stand. I think that those are some of the simplest things. I'd also highly recommend just super practical, you know, I'm not sure whether you have would refer to it as the same thing over there, but in Australia and New Zealand, we usually have what we would call an EAP service, an employee assistance program. So most clinics have a service that they pay for where your staff can ring for support and help. Okay. Yeah. Um, some, of, some of the places here have that, like getting, yeah. getting a therapy session or a coaching session or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of clinics here have those sorts of things. I can think of very few that don't sign up to some sort of program. Mm -hmm. Plus a lot of our registering bodies also give you some free sessions. Plus our, you know, our association here also will give you some free sessions. Yeah. And I really, really encourage people you know, I know it sounds like a cliche to, you know, make sure you use these services, but use them before you need them. If you're a recent grad in a, you know, clinic, one of the things I would highly recommend that you do as you're getting to know the rest of your team is call your service, whatever service is provided to you via your clinic or via your registering body. I'm sure there will be some in most places. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, you know, most of these things have, you know, six free sessions a year or some such. What you don't want to find yourself in is a situation where you're really overwhelmed, you're stressed out of your head, you're at the end of your tether, and then you have to navigate how does this whole thing work and who do I call and all oh, that how person on the end of the line then? totally didn't get me and I don't, that wasn't the right person for me. And I, you know, phone them as part of orienting yourself to the profession or to your new clinic, talk to them, get a feel for how the process works, get a feel for someone you like talking to, you know, phone back again if you hated the first person you talked to. Yeah, you and can give be yourself picky, a right? Not every yeah. therapist, not every coach, it works for everyone, right? We're all, everybody's no. different. Yeah. And we all want, you know, we all have rapport with different people and that's okay. So that's one of the sort of things that I just, I feel like a lot of clinics that do have these services, you know, they'll stick a little brochure about it on the back of the toilet door, or, you know, maybe <laughs> they even raise it at the monthly staff meeting, but it feels like a little bit of a tick box exercise or, you know, just a, you know, lip service to help. I honestly tell you so strongly even if it is just a tick box for them it is a free thing <laughs> that you should mm -hmm. take full advantage of yes. because one day if you ever need it you're going to be so much better off for having already picked up the phone every new job that I do I phone their local EAP service and I suss out one or two people that I like I always then give feedback to my employer that this was a terrible process and <laughs> I think you should consider a new provider if appropriate. Yeah. Um, but I also then talk with my team about that. So if there's any, you know, leaders out there, I think one of the things that we can do to make this feel less like a tick box to some of our staff is talk about your own experiences. If you feel like you can authentically and, you know, that doesn't make you uncomfortable, 
talk to them about how you use it. You know, be honest about the fact that you use it because a lot of people worry that there's a stigma associated with having therapy or talking right. to someone. Right. And it can be really helpful for them to go, oh, this is normal here. Everybody uses that service. My boss does it all the time. Yeah. So, you know, some of those little things just make a really big difference in the end of, you know, end of the day, it all adds up. Yeah. And then and I guess the last thing. I just Sorry, want to interject really quick. I know in Michigan where I'm, where I work, the MVMA, the state association has that kind of service where you can get help. You can get financial help for free. You can get, um, I think therapy and coaching and all of that for free. And I'm even on one of the committees where people can just ask questions and call me for advice or whatever. So I think that if you are in the States, if your employer doesn't provide that, your state may. So check with your state VMA. Right. Yeah. No, I think that sounds pretty similar to here as well. That's really good. Yeah. And then the last little bit I like to of advice I like to give to a lot of new graduates, where I find that one of the things they're struggling with is how to leave other people's baggage at the door. People come you, in. I quote you all the time, so I want to hear what you say. But you said something on another podcast that I I use it all the time, and I give you credit. <laughs> but but I love the way you, you think about it. So go ahead. Um, but yeah, I I just find a lot of the time when people are angry at us in the veterinary situation, it's because they often feel like they've maybe done something wrong. Maybe they feel some guilt about, they know they should have brought their animal to the vet sooner and they haven't and now it's quite ill or they know they should have euthanized it sooner and they haven't or maybe the opposite. Maybe they know that they shouldn't be euthanizing this animal and they are or, you know, as somebody who's run a number of RSPCA organizations here, people try to surrender their animals to you and, you know, all sorts of reasons like, you know, I'm moving into state and I love to say things like, oh, I didn't know they didn't allow animals in New South Wales, <laughs> you know, but when I'm not joking with them, what people are trying to do when they get angry at you, if you say this is how much it costs and they go, nah, can't afford that. Or, you know, cesareans are a really common one, isn't it? They've got yeah, themselves into because the they bred your dog and, and they don't get prepared for that, right? Yeah, and you're going to murder these puppies or, you know, you must be driving around in your Mercedes while, you know, and all of those conversations or I want to surrender my dog and I'm sorry our shelter is full right now and they like to be angry at you. And as people who care, we take that on and we tend to accumulate it over the days and the weeks and the years and we have this weight of responsibility for all of the things that we couldn't do for people. It's really important to remember that when people feel guilt, if they can give it to you, they no longer have to feel it. Right. So by saying it's your fault, I'm absolving myself of that being my fault, whether I should have brought my animal to the vet sooner or, or whatever that looks like. And it's really common for us to take that. We let them chuck it out there and we take that guilt home with us because we right. couldn't help and we would have liked to. Right. What I really, really encourage you to do is go, I acknowledge your anger. 
I acknowledge that you're trying to absolve yourself of your guilt. I imagine in my head this nice little black ball of, you know, if anybody's a Harry Potter fan, this obscurus hanging over their head that's this black, horrible, yucky thing of emotion that they're trying to pass to you. And I let them put it on the table and then I walk away. And hopefully some lovely nurse comes along after me and sweeps it off into the bin and never to throw it off again. (laughs) Exactly. So when people are trying to give you their guilt, let them get it out, look at it on the table, picture it as a living thing if you have to, because I find that helps me, and leave it on the table. It's not yours to take home. Don't let other people give you their guilt. And that's something that I really find resonated with me as a young vet when I finally realized why people were angry at me, mm-hmm. it's because they feel bad. Right. And then I feel bad. Therefore, they no longer have to feel bad because now it was my fault. Yeah. And sometimes I think of it as even grief. They're grieving so many things when they bring their pet to us. They're grieving their loss of time, their loss of money, their loss of the pet, per- particularly their quality of life. If they have an old pet that's, you know, tottering around the house and losing its bowels or whatever, they have a lot of guilt, but also they're grieving in some way. And part of grief is anger and part of grief is denial. And part of grief is, you know, that pushing that emotion onto someone else. And so if you can remember that, that they're guilty, they're grieving, that's all their emotion and it doesn't have to be yours. I I just think that's a really key concept to keep in your brain. And if you do feel yourself taking it on and you do feel that guilt coming in, I just, I love your analogy. I use it all the time because you said it before. You said, put it in a box and leave it on the exam room table and walk out. And I just, I think that is a beautiful way to think about it because it isn't ours to take. We have our own responsibilities. We have our own pets. Our <laughs> yeah, own we've children. got enough going on. <laughs> like, yeah, we have enough guilt and grief and everything to carry around in our own lives that we don't need to take mm-hmm. on the clients. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's just a beautiful way to think about it. So yeah, is that part sure. of the way you talk to the people that are in, not the brand new grads, but the people are further along in their career and they're starting to feel burned out. Is that part of the skill set that you're trying to teach them to be resilient and be um, happy in their job or or just yeah absolutely I think you know because there's often two part there's there's two primary things I find that a lot of people are struggling with either sometimes they come together but often it's either overwhelm this is too much there's got too much going on I can't do a good enough job at all of these things and I want to do a good job and I can't or I'm bored <laughs> I can't see how I can do this every day, 15 minutes at a time for another 45 years of my career. Yeah, they get and I find bored of too... the small talk and the... Mm. Yeah, the I, I think I might have talked to you before as well about um, what I used to call my boredom anxiety. <laughs> so as somebody who, you know, hasn't, you know, I'm blessed with a not especially anxious personality, but um, once or twice in my life, I have had what I would call a panic attack. And I've had all of those sort of physiological sensations of my heart going bonkers and a little bit trembly and I can feel the flushed cheeks and I can hear my heart and all of those kinds of physical reactions to anxiety. Yeah. And I remember a couple of weeks in a row, I had these episodes when I was just standing in a consult room, looking at the list 
and I had that sensation and I was really worried about it for a while because I'm like well am I anxious what am I anxious about you know it took me a really long time to pin down that I was looking at my afternoon of consults none of which were particularly hard vaccine diarrhea dermatology vaccine diarrhea dermatology infection yeah (laughs) yeah exactly and I realized if I have a have to have another consult about ears once more today I'm gonna you know poke my eyeballs out with my thermometer (laughs) and I so I started referring to that feeling as my boredom anxiety where I would have the same physiological responses to my fear of the afternoon's boredom as my fear of the afternoon of other people might feel more anxious about it and I think that that's a really common I mean maybe not the actual physiological reaction but that feeling of I cannot have another white staffy with an ear infection this like I just can't do it is this my life now forever and that's something that I really Um, and passionate about helping people overcome that stage in their career. And it's not the same solution for everybody. Um, Some of my, you know, mentees end up leaving the profession, but I like to think that that is a very, very small segment of them. In fact, it is a very small segment of them. I've only had one so far. (laughs) Right, right. Like I want to keep them in the profession if we can, uh right? Yeah. And so my version of keeping people in the profession, though, is being really, really clear that staying in the profession doesn't have to mean full time clinical work. Right. So there are many aspects of our profession that aren't being a clinician. I get asked all the time now as somebody who manages a large team and runs my own business. Why aren't you a vet anymore? And I look at them and I go, well, hang on a minute. I'm registered. I use my skills and experience to improve the welfare of animals. I, you know, why am I not a vet anymore? I I am, I'm not a clinician anymore. I do the odd locum shift just to make sure I kind of remember how to spay a cat. Right. But I think it's really important for people not to feel stuck. And that that worry that you have of, oh my God, is this it in 15 minute increments for another 40 years is not it. That is not true. You have so, so many options. And that could be as a clinician, you may want to have a specialty. You may want to get involved in leadership at your clinic. You may want to own your own practice or those kinds of really more traditionally thought of as, you know, what we all imagine we might have gone into vet school to do. It might be in industry, it might be in government, it might be in teaching, all of those things. But I think that's also really important to know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Right, it can be all of it, right? It can be all of those things. And I, you know, as somebody who is recently a mum, I have a job that I adore at Taronga Zoo and I have a job that I adore doing, you know, this human part of the animal industry. The reality is I love my consulting business, but I don't want to travel for work all the time. Right. And so being part-time consultant is exceptional for me. I love my job at Taronga. It's such an amazing organization and I'm surrounded by the most intelligent people I've ever been surrounded by in my life. And we do amazing work for conservation. But 
it requires me to be on someone else's schedule in middle management, take direction about stuff I don't always have a say in. And that doesn't always fit with me, but I do it part-time and I love it. Yes. And I love being a mum because sometimes she's at daycare. Right. (laughs) I know. Being a mom, a working mom, I, I get you. I, my kids would sometimes give me a hard time when they got older about the fact that they had to spend time in daycare. They're like, mom, we had to go to daycare in the summer and they put us outside and didn't give us any water. Like they, they'll give me guilt. And I, and I'll say to them, Hey, if I'd have been a stay at home mom, you guys would have had it way worse because I would have not been happy. Yeah, I would have been a terrible mother if I was a full-time mom. And so I just said, like, this is, this is how you were raised. I'm sorry if you didn't like it, you know, that was your lot in life, but they turned out. Okay. Like they're both successful adult humans (laughs) and they still, I think love me dearly. So, you know, that proof is in the pudding isn't it and there's always that guilt right but it's not it's not necessary you can do do it all you can be a hospital owner you can be a mom and what I did one of the things I did um when I started to get that boredom anxiety is I joined the the local veterinary board I did board work as a volunteer I did the state board I volunteered to do CE events like there's so many things you can do that don't, you don't even have to get paid for them, but it, it expands your horizon. So you don't get bored mm-hmm. and you meet more. Yeah, people. absolutely. Yeah. And I think that those things are important. And I would also encourage you to, you know, have hobbies that aren't veterinary. Related. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I did too. But yeah. <laughs> I just think that a lot of us, again, you know, maybe it's, it comes down a little bit to our personality types, but we're kind of all or nothing people. You know, if I'm not a clinician anymore, I failed at being a vet. And I think it's really important to go that you can do multiple things. You can work part time just because you want to. You don't have to work part time just because you have children. You can just do it because you want right. to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you can also work. You know, I was talking to somebody coaching recently and, you know, she was really struggling with, she really enjoyed dairy work. Um, and, you know, she really enjoys conversations with the farmers and she really enjoys being out on the road and she really loves doing this stuff. But she, it doesn't always fit that easily with her values. And, you know, sometimes those conversations about welfare versus money, she doesn't always find that she gets the outcome that makes her feel personally satisfied and those sorts of things. She was like, oh, you know, I, I really like it, but I'm, I think I'm going to have to leave because it's just, you know, I'm struggling to find personal fulfillment. And I'm like, why do you have to leave or stay? Why can't you be a dairy vet three days a week and work in a shelter two days a week? Right. You and know, fulfill both there of those are, needs. Exactly. You've just got to fill all your buckets, but they don't have to all be filled from the same thing. Right. Yeah. Mm. I think people are afraid of that. They're afraid to split up the income. They're afraid to, I don't know, maybe just, maybe just walking away a little bit from medicine or they're afraid to have the conversation with their boss because they were hired full time. And now they're like, I really want to go part time. And then they have that dilemma. It's like, how do I, how do I convey that? How do I keep this job, but also cut back? And, and it's that conflict stuff again, right? It is that conflict stuff. I mean, it is important to remember now more than any time in our profession in the last 50 years, 
you have so much power to ask for flexibility because any sensible employer, i.e. if they don't think like this, you may not be in the right workplace, (laughs) knows that they need to keep their staff. And keeping a part-time happy staff is way better than losing you because they cannot afford to lose you right now. So I think it's really important to kind of, you know, don't hold that over their heads. Don't be rude about it. <laughs> You're in the power but, you know, position, when... but you don't have to say that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't have to be a dick. But at the end of the day, you know, you can walk into a conversation knowing if they decide, no, they don't want you to work three days a week only option for them is to keep doing five days a week you will get anywhere in any suburb anywhere in the country you can walk up to the next clinic down the road and go I'd like to work 8 a.m till 3 p.m Monday Wednesday and Friday please and have every sixth weekend off they're gonna go yep yep no worries please please seriously that's absolutely true yeah one of my coaching clients wanted to be home for her son in the afternoon and I said, well, when you go to apply for the job, tell them that. Tell them you can only work till three. Tell them you're willing to come in at 7 a.m., but you have to leave at three. And mm-hmm. she has plenty of people that want her to work. So mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. I think we we have to start thinking outside the box. We have to start thinking about what's best for us and what we love and what we want um, and sometimes you have to try things to know whether it's going to work or not. And that's okay too. Like you work somewhere yeah. for a year and it doesn't work out, then you go somewhere else. Like it, there's all those possibilities. And, they, you and can say no that to your boss, you know, if they're hesitant and unsure how it's going to work, just say, what about six months? For six months, you know, see, it's not working for me, not working for you. We'll have another conversation. Right. You know, you don't have to go, right, I'm all in or all out in any of these scenarios. And I think that's, you know, really helpful just to, above everything else, remember that you are not stuck and that no, that 15-minute conversation does not have to be the rest of your life over and over and over again you've got so much potential and so many avenues open to you to always keep your career feeling fresh and exciting and engaging yeah and I I see it even more now than maybe you know 15 20 years ago because of all of the stuff that's opening up to us online jobs and you know poison control like there's so many things that you can do And I think that, you know, just being open to that is going to help when you get to that point where you're starting to feel stuck. And even before, like you said, start looking at it before you start to feel stuck. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And, you know, I, I think one of the things, again, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, I've said this three times already in this conversation, but there are sometimes typical personality traits of vets and it's not everybody but um you know we we want to do things really well and the idea of thinking that stuff didn't turn out how we expected it to can be a little bit hard to admit and the veterinary career not being quite what we expected when we were 20 you know that makes sense guys we're 20 
everybody is naive when they're 20 you can't have known my dad asked me recently you know what would what would a careers counsellor in high school have to have you know said to you in high school to talk you out of going to vet school so that you didn't you know go down that career path you know and not end up being a vet sort of said oh look frankly nothing no nothing would have talked me out of it I had a number of vets tell me how terrible they found it and I completely ignored their advice and I was like that's not going to be me yeah laser focused right like we really wanted to be a vet yeah Yeah. I'm with you the second part that I I feel like my dad didn't know this which made me quite sad the second (laughs) part I had to be really really clear on is I have no regrets about my veterinary degree you know, I love my career. I have done so many interesting things. I do interesting things every day. I work with exceptional people all the time. And I'm not being weird, you know, like glorifying it because, you know, I work in the industry and want people to enjoy it because that's my job. Right. I feel satisfied that I have a variety in my life mm-hmm. that few people actually get to have. Correct. And that is because I went to vet school first. Yep. Okay. I've done a few other degrees since, but that's because I have an obsession with learning. <laughs> but I just think it's really important to kind of, you know, go. Nothing would have talked me out of being a vet. And I'm so glad nobody did. Yes. Because yeah. I, the opportunities it's open for me have just been exceptional. And right. I'm only partway yeah. through my career. Yeah. And the variety. I think that's what I love so much about it. I I think I would be so much more bored. Like you said, there's that boredom anxiety, but had I been, I don't know, my mom wanted me to be an orthodontist and like straightening kids teeth all day. Oh gosh, that sounds horrible to me. I mean, I probably have a whole lot more money than I have today, but it's it's just the idea of how awful would that be? And so I, I, I'm with you. I love vet med. I think it's the most amazing thing. I love the people. When I go, I went to the VMX in January and just to, yep. there was 27,000 veterinary professionals there. And just standing amongst those people, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, this is the best profession. And they had this 80s party that was a blast. And like, they're just cool people, smart people, cool people. Um, I don't know, just vet med is amazing. And I, and I'm so on board with that for you. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I'm doing now. It's like, I want to offer people these things. Like you're saying, let's make it better. Let's get the variety Mm -hmm. in our life that we need and and let's Mm -hmm. enjoy what we've got. You know, that's a a segue, you know, I know I'm getting off topic, but but (laughs) one of the things that I, find a little bit at the moment COVID made things even tougher in an already tough industry absolutely and I am very aware that this is coming from somebody who's not in clinical practice looking in and I can see how hard clinical practice is right now and people are working their butts off and the supply demand ratio for our services is just insane but I also hear a lot of doomsday-ish, you know, our profession is 
screwed or, you know, it's a crisis, you know, we're never going to recover from this and we could never possibly service this many people. And a, a lot of talk that's very, yeah, it's just doomsday-ish. It's very, you know, the same as the tea room gossip. It's falling into that negativity trap, just going around in circles about how bad it is without ever really kind of going, well, hang on, wait, what am I doing? You know, the solution here. Right. But I think something. the stories that we tell ourselves do matter. And so if we're hearing all the time how bad our profession is, particularly for recent graduates, but also for anybody who's a little bit wavering about all oh, this is feeling hard right now. And all we hear is this mainstream media kind of confirmation bias about how hard it is and how terrible things are and the sky is falling. That story sticks and gets more and more ingrained every time. And what I genuinely believe to be the case, the more and more people I coach, is that that is a small and vocal minority of people who feel that their profession is doomed. Right, yeah. There are a lot of people out there who love this job who enjoy this job, who are satisfied, who have long, fulfilling careers, who maybe don't get paid as much as they would absolutely love, but they've got enough to have a decent house and a decent suburb and their kids probably go to private schools. Mm-hmm. They're doing fine. Right. And those people aren't the voices that we're hearing. Yes. And that makes me a little bit sad. And, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't issues. Please don't, you know, mistake this for thinking that we don't have stuff to solve. We absolutely do. Right. But I don't think that listening to that really vocal group of people going, you know, the industry's failing us and my clinic's failing us is is fair. Because if we look at the trajectory of our industry as a whole from the perspective of how we would treat a patient, you know, there have been some issues. It's <laughs> been issues ticking along in our of industry course. for quite a long time. And people have kind of tinkered on the edges of trying to work out what to do about it, but largely they chucked band-aids on it. You know, they right. often suicide hotlines and they, you know, put more attempted more training at vet schools about various things. But that was kind of it. And it's only in the recent years as, you know, our animal has gotten sicker. that people have actually tried doing some real genuine diagnostic work and looking at, you know, okay, well, what are the issues? What are people struggling with? You know, who is our demographic? What is really going on? And I, you know, in my analogy of this being just like our, you know, our own patients, they're doing proper diagnostic investigations to work out what's going on. And I think I genuinely believe that the point that we're in right now is we're about to move into the treatment plan phase. You know, we've got some really good diagnostics of what's not right, what's not working, and how it's looking to people out there. And now we need to come up with a treatment plan for that. And yep, so right now we haven't started any recovery yet. We're still kind of showing all of of these symptoms. We're kind of on that the precipice of getting better. But we can't do the recovery thing until we've done good diagnostics, which has now been, you know, there's so many people out there working in this space, you know, between you and I doing this sort of individual and clinic-based work, but so many people doing this industry-wide stuff. 
to make this profession better. And I think that our treatment plan is really close to being implemented. And of course, it'll be a very multifactorial treatment plan. Right, right. Heart health here. Heart health. Yeah, heart health. (laughs) And there is going to be some recovery very soon. And I really believe that. And I think if we can start to sell that story, it's just a little bit easier to stay engaged on the tough days. This isn't the end of our horrible, terrible profession. Right. This is us about to hit a recovery phase that we can be a big part of. Yeah, I love that. Well, that sounds like a really good spot to end. What do you think? Yeah. I, mean, I definitely so want to have you back. Off on a tangent, as usual, no, no, no. But... I, I love that. I mean, I, I think that's a really important point that you're making. It's like the doomsday is not real. You know, like I always talk about the Chihuahua brain that's always telling us we're going to die and we're going to, you know, the, the way the Chihuahuas act when you try to do anything to them. And I think that that's your point. It's like, we don't need to be in that mindset. We can change mm-hmm. that. So that's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can add that to my analogies that, you know, when you're trying to do the diagnostics on the Chihuahua, there's a lot of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's why I always call it my Chihuahua brain, because that's what how I picture it. I picture it as one of those dogs that you go to reach for and he's just like, you know, and screaming and trying to bite you and screaming before you even touch them. And that's what our brain does. So, you know, yeah. I think that's an industry-wide thing. So I, I love the way you kind of wrap that all up. Well, I really appreciate you being here. Do you have any last words of things that we should have said that we didn't today? And I'll certainly have you back. I love talking to you. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of that, you know, you you and I have a very similar view on a lot of these things and that chihuahua brain is not a term I've used, but I do use the saber tooth tiger. (laughs) Similar idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. Does your brain really know whether the difference between something that's trying to kill you and, you know, you just having done a mediocre job today? (laughs) Seriously, like that is the, that is the task, right? It's just figuring out what your brain's thinking that isn't necessarily true and, and how it drives everything. So mm-hmm. I, I really love that. Well, I thank you so much for staying up late. I got up early, you stayed up late so we could do this and I really appreciate it. And I definitely want to have you back again and congratulations on your baby. I'm so excited about that. And uh, being a mom is, is one of the greatest things in the world, the hardest things and the greatest things. So yeah but like I say I think it's really important for everybody to know that other people out there believe that they're better parents for not being full-time parents <laughs> yes yeah we're in that boat together right yeah I yeah. my, I think my that neighbor that's used to that not shame. everybody feels good saying out loud yeah my neighbor used to shame me when I was uh, when my kids were little because she was a stay-at-home mom and she'd say things to me like well, I don't want my daughter to be a doctor because then she can't be a good mom, you know, and she, she didn't really like mean it. I think the way it sounded, but to me, it was basically like, you're not a good mom because you're a doctor. And so, but I, you know, you, you can get through that. It's like, well, this is what's right for me. This that's, what's right for you. And, you know, her kids turned out okay. And my kids turned out okay. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is what you make. I had it. one, I once had a nurse at work tell me that, she would be horrified if her son brought home someone like me. Oh, <gasps> no. And the funny thing is she she liked me as a person. She just wanted somebody who would be a, Stay at a, a home different and... sort of life for her oh, son. Wow. And 
That's you know, I was a little offended. I thought that horrified was a slightly strong yes. word to use, like unnecessarily <laughs> strong. But at the same time, you know, I love who I am. Many people love who I am. I am very, very confident that maybe not when she's a teenager, but most of the time my kid might love who I am too. She will. And that's enough. Yeah, it is. Cause you're a super cool person. Well, I love who you are. I appreciate you being here today with me. Um, this is Dr. Jessica Moore Jones. Um, tell people where they can find you if they want to find you. Yeah, so I'm at unleashedconsulting.com.au. That AU yeah. is fairly remember important. that as Australia, <laughs> right? All right. Well, I thank you so much. I love this My conversation pleasure, and we'll do it again. Love to see you Have again. Bye. Yeah. Have a beautiful week, everyone. Bye.